Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. At the end of last week's episode, my next track pick was the new release by Robert Fripp called Exposures. It is a 32-disc version around the album Exposure, which is from 1979. I said that there's probably more Robert Fripp in this set than you really want. And then I went out and bought it, and I realized that there is so much great Robert Fripp in this set. And I thought, if we wanted to talk about this, there is no better person to have on the show than the man who wrote the liner notes, Sid Smith. Sid, thank you for joining us again. Hi. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Sid has joined us previously to talk about his book In the Court of King Crimson, which was a biography of King Crimson. So Sid is really the official Crimson scribe, is that correct? Um, I don't, I don't know if if that position actually officially exists, but um, uh, so, so I guess so um, in practice, if if not in actuality. So this set covers pretty much from red to discipline, between red and discipline. So what about seventy four to eighty one, and. What struck me, so Robert Fripp was in New York at the time. What struck me is this was my peak musical discovery period in New York City. And there are so many things I hear that remind me of what was going on in New York. When you listen to Exposures, you've got Frippertronics, which we'll talk about in a minute, his technique of guitar looping. You've got a track like Breathless, which is kind of sounds like the Lower East Side, uh, you know, no wave stuff. You've got this amazing recording of Peter Gabriel singing Here Comes the Flood. It is this mixture of all these styles. And as you go forward through the League of Gentlemen, through all the various iterations of Fripp's different ensembles, it is an amazing period with an amazing variety. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... It's a substantial, whichever way you look at it, it's a substantial uh, box set, this. Um, it covers from 77 through to 83, in fact. And, um, man, there's there's a lot in it. Um, and what was interesting when we were working on the box set, which has been in production for some considerable time, um, I, think, I think about... Five years ago is when the idea for this box set, you know, was crystallized, maybe even longer than that. But Robert Robert wasn't keen on, at the time, Robert wasn't keen on doing a, a, an exposure box set because he wanted the focus to be on King Crimson, which at the time was kind of reinventing itself uh, as the seven-piece band. And kind of for a whole variety of reasons, Robert didn't want that to exposure to kind of either kind of get in the way of that or perhaps be lost lost between the cracks, perhaps. I don't know. Um, so what you get is this. I think what the box set captures is um, a period uh, which you alluded to of remarkable creativity. Um, and that creativity, it, 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 I mean, almost every disc on this um, is contains revelatory moments, you know. Now, I guess, you know, 32 discs, 
170 hours of Frippertronics, whatever it, you know, on a Blu-ray. Um, that's probably way too much for the average person. <laughs> and the good news is what Panagiric always do very well is if you just want the new mix and if you just want the kind of surround mix or whatever, there's a two-disc version that you can buy. And for a lot of people, that's going to be enough. Um, but for people who want to take a deep dive uh, and go into um, detailed exploration of where Robert was as an artist, um, I think this box set, uh, obviously you'd expect me to say this, but but I do think this box set um, is, is incredibly detailed and illustrates how an artist is responding to his environment, his what's going on in his personal life, um, and an exposure, the original album and this box set, um, you know, is an intensely personal uh, uh, piece of work. Why did he go to New York? I mean, he really could have gone anywhere where there was a music scene, but he, why did he choose New York? Um, I think, I mean, Robert's kind of talked about this at, at some length over the years, so I don't think there's, you know, there's anything um, that you haven't heard before on this one. But when I talked to Robert, when we were doing, Robert and I did a series of six or seven lengthy conversations when we were preparing this album. And um, he comes out of, by, by 1974, um, Robert's been on the road pretty much constantly um, and is pretty much worn out by everything that's gone on in his life um, since 1968, let's say, or 69 for sure, which is when Crimson formally started. Um, by 1974, they've done America dozens of times, he's burnt out and he wants, he finds a, a spiritual alternative. Robert doesn't like the word spiritual, but let, for, for shorthand, let's just call it a spiritual retreat. Um, so he does that for a year, steps outside the, the music industry and realises he doesn't want to go back into the music industry. And after a year away from it, he kind of radically recalibrates his life. And if you're going to go for any, you can't get much more radical than moving from, say, um, Sherborne House in Darkest Dorset um, to New York, you know, the city that never sleeps, et cetera, et cetera. And in the 70s, a period of not just ferment, but bankruptcy. The city had gone bankrupt around that time. Yeah. I mean, this, the, the, the part where Robert, uh, Robert rents a flat, or sublets a flat, rather, um, through uh, somebody he knows in New York. And uh, he went away, um, he left England with the, um, with the intention of, I think, to find himself, to find a different way of doing things, um, which uh, which I think he managed to do on, on his own terms. And when he does return, um, his, his, his return is, is slow um, and it's informed, it's a sort of step-by-step -step process, but it's informed by the, the velocity of New York. And I think he, he responded to that... Um, uh, 
there's a kind of a naturalness to the scene in New York. So he talks about, you know, and has done over the years, he talks about there was a kind of a liberation. He wasn't, in, in England, he was Robert Fripp, King Crimson's Robert Fripp, and there was a certain type of expectation that went with that. Um, in New York, he was, you know, I mean, some artists, they knew who he was, but not through King Crimson. They knew who he was through Brian Eno, through the emerging new wave, no wave kind of scene where where his name become gets dropped, you know, as a as a as a, as a significant player. Yeah, King Crimson wasn't known as a mainstream band at that time. They had a small following in colleges and midwestern cities, but places like New York, I mean, I know they played in New York and San Francisco and all these places, but they weren't really known. They weren't a big band at that point. They weren't at the level of Yes and ELP and other bands. No, nowhere near it. I mean, nowhere near it. They were, King Crimson were always, um, there was that sense with Crimson in 74 that they were about to break big. Um, and of course they didn't. <laughs> um, but, and I'm, and Robert's skeptical about that whole, like John Wetton, his view was, one more push, and, and we'll get into that stratosphere. Robert was skeptical about that uh, at the time and and in in hindsight. But um, yeah, King Crimson. We over, we tend to kind of think of. I saw King Crimson recently regard, um, listed as one of the big six of prog, along with Yes and ELP and uh, and and Genesis and. But they weren't. I mean, they actually weren't. They were. They were. You know, they were they were a support act. <laughs> to use New York as an example, they would play in places like the Palladium, which had about twenty five hundred seats, and yes, and ELP would play in Madison Square Garden, which held twenty thousand people. Yeah, that was the big difference. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They they were the the elite. Pro and see, and and I said this when you were on the show before. When I was in that period in the seventies, no one among me and my friends really even called them a prog rock band. We did not equate them with the SELP, Supertramp, and all the others that you could label as prog rock. We just considered that they were sui generis, that, well, there's rock and there's jazz and there's heavy metal, and it's just this weird mixture. Mm, I think that's right. I, and and yet, in, in the UK and in parts of Europe, King Crimson were quite, a, although they weren't like in big terms of big sales, they were a kind of, people figured them, you know, um, there was less ambiguity regarding people's view of King Crimson. Uh, in America, because they were largely unknown, um, oh yeah, King Crimson, people had heard of King Crimson, people knew King Crimson, um, but they weren't kind of, it wasn't like a big deal. Yeah. And people were more impressed, the fact that, oh, you play with Brian Eno, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as that develops, you know, obviously he's playing with, as we move on in the story a little bit, you know, he's playing with, he's the guy who turns up on a Peter Gabriel album. He's the guy who right. plays with David Bowie. Yeah, on Heroes, which is one of the most extraordinary guitar solos, even though it's not a guitar solo. The guitar sound on the song Heroes is just revolutionary. Well, it's not just the, it's not just the sound, it's the melody. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, that, I mean the that, whole thing. But it's not—it's not like—it's not like the solos that he plays on something like "Saint Elmo's Fire" by Brian Eno. No. It's—it's it's an obligato solo on "Heroes." Well, as as you know, it's it's three or four solos yeah. all mixed together, yeah. processed. But 
But the that melody, um, which everybody um, knows from Heroes, um, you know, wasn't given to him to play. That's that's his melody. Um, he comes up with that, uh, which is pretty much one of the hooks of the song for sure. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's perfect. It's it's quite perfect. Robert is is in a sense untethered from all of the all of his history in New York, and I think that appeals. Uh, that appeals to Robert, and it, uh, and curiously enough, there's a kind of an optimism in the air. So, for all New York is going is decaying and it's falling apart in many respects, um, there's actually quite a good vibrant arts community, and Robert, Robert Robert responds to that. And there's a good sort of experimental community, and Robert definitely responds to that. He responds to the optimism that he finds there. Um, the unfussiness of, you know, people don't stand on ceremony. Um, so, uh, and and that is a curious reminder for Robert of what it was like all the way back in the in the early sixties when he was in a band. There's there's there he is still learning the guitar and he's playing in in he's playing kind of cover versions and pickups. Uh, in youth clubs, in small, inappropriate venues, um, and generally people are, you know, often dancing to this stuff, you know, that he's playing. Um, even a bit later, when he's when he's in a hotel dance band, taking over from Andy Summers, who's gone off to join Dantalian's Dan chariots, um, you know, there, there's there's so so. In a sense, New York it, it represents a kind of a an unfettered um, aspect for Robert uh, that he really he really adores. There's a um, a terrific picture of him on the back of the League of Gentlemen album, where they're all sitting on a stoop on, in in New York. It's very obvious they're in New York and they're sitting on a tenement stoop, yeah. and he's got his jacket off and he's casually thrown it over his shoulder. <laughs> and I always think that that's an like that's the picture that we had of Robert Fripp. <laughs> sitting with a couple of musicians, took his jacket off, his formal jacket off, and he's, you know, here he is talking to these, don't the guys in the band all have funny names and things like that? I mean, it was so, you, he, his fashion, the way he looked, the way he, the way he was in that picture, to me, was Robert Fripp. That's the only Robert Fripp I saw for years. Yeah. I just think it's a tremendous picture. It is. It's a good picture. The, my favorite picture from a little bit earlier than that is, which is featured in the box set and elsewhere, um, it's readily available online, is where he's standing on the street with his, um, with his Les Paul in a guitar case and he's next to, some, he's next to a mailbox and some trash and, uh, a t uh, you know, a, a, a vandalized telephone box or whatever. And I love that shot um, because mm. it, it plays to the whole kind of have guitar will travel, you know. Yeah, and that sense of, you know, this mobility um, that he that he sort of espoused, you know. It it was very much like a, a the Englishman abroad. He he, he kind of yeah. had adopted that sort of. Yeah. Uh, he was a kind of a touristy sort of a a, a feel that he had. There, there there is a thing that happens when we go abroad. Uh, I mean, obviously, Robert was well used to going to New York. Uh, and elsewhere in America, but there's something that happens when we when we go abroad. I, I mean, I'm just talking on a personal level, but I suspect it's the same for lots of other people. 
when you go abroad, you don't think anything about, and, and you're tramping. My wife and I, when we go abroad, Debbie and I go abroad, well, we used to go abroad before COVID. We haven't been abroad since COVID, obviously. Um, and and what do we do when we go on holiday? Well, what we do is we, we, uh, we all say this, we like to get lost. And so we don't have a street map. And we just go walking, <laughs> and then we turn down an alleyway, and and then we and then eventually we find the place that we were always looking for, even though we didn't know this was the place we were looking for. And I think there's an element of that um, for Robert. I think there was a sort of sense of let's see what happens. And um, I think the other side of it is you mentioned about being an Englishman in, in New York or an Englishman abroad, rather. Um, I think there's definitely a sense of that. People, one of the reasons why Robert went down well with people is because he was this funny English guy. He was a bit quirky. He, he ha as you'll know, I mean, Robert has a very dry sense of humour. Um, and, you know, so sometimes people don't know that he's joking. There's a... He he made random notes in Rolling Stone one time because he got his hair cut really short. You know, that was a big deal. For random notes yeah and he said of the stylist who cut his hair and i'll never forget it he said she is a sculptress who works in the medium of hair and it's like it immediately got quoted and everybody was talking about it, it was such a, 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 a phrase to drop so frippy and and it was it was terrific and i've never forgotten it so there you go who who knew that robert in 1977 or 79 uh would pioneer the Sheldon Cooper look yeah. years before yeah. Sheldon Cooper ever existed. I, I want to talk about Frippertronics because the, one of the main draws of this set for me is Frippertronics. I've always loved this. I've mentioned on the show how much I like Fripp's soundscapes as well, which sort of evolved from Frippertronics. I, I do want to take a bit of umbrage about the way the 130 Frippertronics concerts are presented on two Blu-ray discs. They're not presented as audio files, but you stick them in a Blu-ray player and you have to play in order. I mean, you can press the next thing. And so you can liberate the audio and create files if you do a bit of work. I think it kind of deserved better presentation. But what you get through all of these is this evolution of a technique, which you can hear from the very earliest recordings. And, and I'm thinking back to No Pussyfooting that he did with Brian Eno in 73. You can hear the evolution of how he went from this to today's soundscapes. You can hear in the, for Petronics recordings, how he's going to discipline as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the, I mean, the Frippertronics, it's interesting the extent to which Frippertronics uh, did to uh, Coyofreas strike a chord with people um, in a way that doesn't seem entirely um, obvious. Um, I often think, why do people like Frippertronics? What is it about Frippertronics that, that people do respond to. Um, I mean, not everybody likes it, but, you know, of course. But I think it's the combination of there's a structure with the mel with the loops in the background and there's the improvisation and no two recordings are the same, no two performances, which you get with jazz and you get with jam bands. Mm. Except here it's just the one guy, and I think that adds to it a lot. I'm a big fan of Jorma Kalkinen. I saw him live many times. And one person can sit up on the stage for three hours and the audience is just fully attentive. And it's the same kind of thing. I mean, Robert was playing in little venues like record stores and bathrooms and stuff. But the, <laughs> the way he could just control an audience and it's hypnotic. 
as well. I, I remember seeing Dave Reich and his ensemble at the Bottom Line in New York in I think '78. Tiny little club playing this great minimalism, and there's something about that the minimalism, the the sort of momentum that that just draws you in. Yeah, I I, I think that's absolutely true. I think one of the reasons people do respond to Fripertronics in in venues um, at the time and subsequently. Uh, although it isn't for everybody, is it's it's pretty naked. It's you're seeing um, there's a passage in the in the liner notes where uh, Robert was met with a bit of quite a lot of resistance from the management and the label who said, if you do this, people will see there's no. It's like the Emperor's clothes. There's, and Robert's response to that was, "Well, good." And there, but and that's true. There is a sort of sense of um, this is this is about as close as you can get to an artist who is who is responding to time and place and people and circumstances on the fly, right there. Now, like any musician, um, Robert will have approaches that he uses, and he will have, um, you know, there will be recurring motifs. Um, And you can trace those across his entire career. Um, I'm thinking, for example, like the modo perpetuo motif that Robert uses in principally in Fracture. But actually, that line goes way back before Fracture. And with Fripatronics, there are similar kind of motifs that that come, you know, what goes around comes around, quite literally. Um, but 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 the circumstances are always different, and the utilization of the things in Robert's toolbox as a as a composer uh, will change. Um, and sometimes he won't get the stuff out at all. And I think one of the things that's been really fantastic. Um, is over the years is the extent to which um, these solo because we've got the reels, we've got the actual physical reels on which Robert would lay down uh, the, the if you like the backing track. But in concert, Robert would then solo. But often those you know ninety nine percent of the time they were not recorded. <laughs> um, and what this does is it captures. Um, Alex uh, Mundy, who's a who's an engineer, an audio engineer, works uh, for DGM. Um, just took it upon himself one day to see if he could sync up uh, a, a bootleg solo with the reel, and then more than that, you know, he kind of he realised that if he turned everything up to ridiculous levels of volume. You could just hear the solo that Robert was playing because it was picked up on on some other recorder or on the other reel or something like that, and eventually refined the process so that we do get some of the reels with the performance, and that's been astonishing listening to some of that. So those performances really come alive, and some of the soloing is phenomenal. Um, it's it's again I, I, sometimes you know understandably Robert's playing isn't for everybody. Uh, people think we were talking about Bob Dylan earlier. You know, um, sometimes 
these people can be polarizing forces. Um, but I think what you get uh, with the soloing is you get, so I mentioned earlier, there was this naked aspect to the, the Fripertronics performances, but you get uh, with the soloing, so outside of the looping, you get this soloing, which is intense, sometimes intensely emotional. And, you know, the guitaring, there's no stunt guitaring going on. I think there's a kind of a, there's an unfolding of an idea and a development. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. And you can hear them change, change course. You can, you can hear them sort of go, yeah, that's not working. <laughs> but, but, so I'll try something else. And then, you know, it goes, it, you follow them or you don't, as the case may be. But I do think the, Export, I do think the Fruitatronics stuff um, is definitely one of the jewels in the crown in this in this box for sure. It's it's pretty pretty impressive stuff by anybody's standards. I think. So League of Gentlemen, I remember when that record came out, and that was one of these sort of like, whoa, what's going on in here? And it was of its time. I don't remember if that group Polyrock was before or after. Polyrock was this group that was produced by Philip Glass, and it had that same sort of minimalist kind of sound. And I haven't listened to that. Sorry? Quirky. Well, definitely. I haven't listened to League of Gentlemen in a long time, and it is quirky. In a way, it sounds like a dead end because you can't do much with it, but there is this quirkiness that also sounds like some of the guitar you're going to hear on Discipline a couple of years later. I think um, there, there, there are two aspects to the League of Gentlemen. I've listened to every single League of Gentlemen performance that exists in the archive. I mean, every single one. Um, and I've annotated all of them as far as I know. Um, and and what what's definitely if you're going to listen to the league of gentlemen then i think the live version of the league of gentlemen is is where it is the place to go i think the album um the album's okay um the album that was put out in 80 was it 81 or is it 81 yeah. or 82 it was yeah. 81 i think um i think uh, i mean that, that album's okay but i'm not sure it's there's there's much there for me it's the it's the earliest it's the, when i say earlier stuff i mean probably like four days before they went into the studio forget of yeah. course they had a, a change of personnel two days before they went into the studio yeah uh, they changed uh, drummers because uh, one drummer was became unavailable but um for me, the, the way that band works is in concert rather than in the studio, and uh, and I would my one regret <laughs> is that there's a bit of the League of Gentlemen live stuff on this box set, but you know you could have easily. I mean, I I had a short list of of about thirteen gigs, <laughs> which I thought were absolutely top notch, and Rob. Performance on them was astonishing. I mean, I think the ones that are, are included on the box are are good and reasonable, and and in some cases exceptional. But but we could have had another ten discs if, if it was left to me. This wouldn't be a thirty-two box, thirty-two disc box. It'd be a forty-two <laughs> disc box. You know, is the Daryl Hall stuff included on this as well? Yeah, everything. Yeah. Yeah. There's, in, I mean, uh, there's just tons of it. Now, how did he? How did he and Daryl Hall get hooked up? Uh, uh, that's just one of those interesting things. 
they, 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 they knew, they got, they, I think it was through an industry contact well before, uh, I think before Robert went to New York, I think they were, they were uh, linked up um, through some mutual contact. Um, and, you know, originally, as you know, the plan was that Daryl Hall was going to be the sole vocalist on uh, Exposure. But because uh, Daryl Hall's management um, primarily um, thought that it would it would be damaging for Daryl's career, um, then they withheld permission. And in some respects, that sort of that setback that's what prompted Robert to reimagine the album. Um, but the good news is, and, and go with. Having, I think they allowed two or three tracks of Daryl Hall on the on the album originally, mm. um, but then of course Robert had to get other vocalists, so he had to get Peter right. Gabriel and Terry Roche. Um, but but that wasn't like that wasn't a a consolation prize. Actually, it was it was a brilliant piece of improvisation, and in some respects, the album that eventually comes out as Exposure is is is. A much stronger album, in fact, in some respects. That said, what this box set has managed to do is it's managed to uh, restore all of the all of the Daryl Hall vocals and some oh, instrumentation boy. that was missing, uh, which Robert decided at the time, you know, uh, he didn't want that. Um, years later, forty odd years later, you know, let's put that in now, you know. Um, yeah. So, so pretty much anybody who wonders. What what exposure would have sounded like with just Daryl Hall? Well, it's here. <laughs> I, I mean, I like the Sacred Songs album. I think that also gives you a little yeah. taste of it too. Um, yeah. As you say, they 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 thought it would put a damper on Hall and Oates in their yeah. career. Be, well, what's this guy yeah. doing hanging around with this quirky English guy? What's that about? Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah the, the 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 Daryl Hall solo album is terrific. They held that album back, as you, as yeah. you said, uh, for two or three years. Um, <laughs> And that kind of derailed things a little bit, uh, but but the you know the the good news is that with the passage of time, all of this stuff becomes and it becomes it's now available, and we can look at it again. As I said earlier, this remarkable period of creativity and, and invention, um, which you know, um, the other side of it is um, this was a period in Robert's life where he was incredibly happy. <laughs> He, when I talked to Robert, when we were doing these several days of interviews about the box set, um, I would say to Robert, you know, uh, you know, after after day one or day two, I'd say, right, well, I think I've got everything I need um, for for this, and he'd say, no, you haven't. <laughs> what about the time when? And I'd say, okay, right, well, yeah. And he said, I'll tell you what, let's let's meet tomorrow. And I'll go, okay, right. So, and as I say, we ended up doing, you know, six or seven days. He's a talker. And and he wanted to talk. He was so keen to talk about this period. Well, in many ways, there have been a lot of King Crimson box sets, and they're all about King Crimson. This is the first one that's just about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think he's, uh, I, I mean, he's on record in the booklet as being, he's incredibly proud of this uh, work. He thinks it's a, uh, uh, this is a paraphrase, but I think he said something like, it's a stunning achievement. 
So, so that makes me ask. I, I reread your book in the Court of King Crimson over the past week. When are you going to do a biography of Robert Fripp? Because you do mention this period in the book, but you don't I like all the stuff that Fripp's done with Eno. I would love to hear to see a book about that. I know that obviously a box set, you know, the licensing issues, so that's not going to work. But I would love to see a biography of Robert Fripp. And for the King Crimson part, you can. You know, just say in a few pages you can talk about each album and then everyone goes back to the other book. But I would like to see the thread of Fripp's life on its own. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's been talked about. Um, that's, that's, I can't say that. But um, I, think, I think one of the, one of the things about, I mean, the, you know, there's, there's kind of, uh, I think the essay in this booklet is fifteen thousand words. I think, um, or it's somewhere in that in that vicinity, and it could be a lot more. <laughs> um, so, so that's about a sixth of a book. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it's <laughs> it's, um, and it's something that, uh, as I say, uh, there, there is there is some interest in that idea. Um, whether or not it comes to pass, well, we wait and see. But I think. Um, there's certainly enough there, and if you take, um, even if you if you take uh, Robert's work in the in the round th from this period and beyond, um, there's so much to get your teeth into. Sure, the, as I said, always work with Brian Eno. All the stuff he's done with Soundscapes, Theo Travis, other collaborations he's done, Sideman production. He he's kind of like the Zelig in this whole 50 years of music, isn't he? Or almost 60 years of music now. Yeah, there, there's a, I mean, that's one of the rules that I think Robert inhabits very well. Um, Robert will never make, you know, the top 10 of the most influential guitarists, you know. Um, there'll always be a big long list of people before you get to, to Robert. I think years and years ago, was it Rolling Stone? He was 42nd of the top 100 <laughs> guitarists of the year, and that that's a that's a position that suits Robert down to the ground. He's yeah. he's not interested in being number one. But what he, but I think um, as I see it, I think what Robert um, is interested in is he's interested in connecting people to the process of making music at a very, very direct and real level. And so, for example, uh, Robert's, Robert doesn't see any of this or, or any of his work as King Crimson as his main thing in life. His main thing in life would be guitar craft. That's, that's what he would regard as the reason he's on the planet. Right, so Guitarcraft is this sort of teaching program that he has to teach guitarists how to play, but not just how to play music, how to, I don't want to use the word spiritual, but there is a sort of a mind-body thing going on there. Yeah, and, and I mean, he talked about some of the mechanics of that, uh, of that process that evolved into uh, Guitarcraft. He talks about that process, um, albeit, you know, tangentially, um, in this period. You know, there's a way of having a, um, a a relationship with music that isn't mediated by, you know, the record company. Um, and in a sense, you know, what Robert did with the uh, with the Fripertronics thing was was a way of navigating that. That how can I how can I get rid of all the other stuff that gets in the way of one person and 
music. Uh, and, and of course, as listeners, um, Robert was, often those, those gigs were accompanied by a, a Q&A. And, uh, you know, Robert would often say, you know, the, the, the audience, the, there was an opportunity for the audience and the performer to do something that couldn't be done anywhere else. It was entirely unique to that time, to that record shop, to that restaurant, to that wherever it was he was playing. And it wouldn't be the same in the next city or even the same city across a few blocks. It would be entirely down to, it was a moment of communion that was utterly unique if people wanted to let it in and, and, and we were all in the same page. And for a, a a fair few, I think you achieved that, you know. Um, and you'll talk to people who were at Fripatronic gigs. I, I never saw Fripatronics live, but you talk to people who were, and a lot of them, you know, talk about it in almost evangelical terms. You know, their life was transformed in the same way that I might talk about seeing King Crimson in 1972. You know, I, I came out of that concert a changed person, something fundamental. I was party and privy to something that I'd not experienced at, say, a Led Zeppelin concert or a Deep Purple concert or, a whoever, or whoever those bands were that I was going to see in 1972. Something fundamentally different happened at that gig. And I think for a lot of people, um, one person whose life was changed uh, by Fripatronics concert um, was uh, Bill Reefland. You know, um, Bill Reefland, uh, who would be later, much many, many years later, um, be, be the third drummer and then later the keyboard player in King Crimson. So uh, Bill's life was changed um, entirely by, by that experience. Uh, but, you know, these are, this happens, that's the power of music. And I think what this box set explores is one person's relationship with the power of music and it's and and the transformative possibilities that do exist in music now that sounds like a load of wang it sounds like uh no that's the full quote that's perfect yeah but <laughs> but, but but you know if we're if we're being serious about music but music can but, do that it's true and, and i think what stands out in in this set is a lot of this as you've been saying is just him in the audience and it's taking away all of that stuff that's around whether it be the music industry the band the large venues etc and it is a different experience it's also a it's a politics free zone as well and by politics i mean essentially band politics yeah, and, and a lot of your book talks about the politics of the band, of who wants to do this and who's under contract to do that, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because King Crimson, you look at the Rolling Stones, and they're on their 60th anniversary tour, and they've more or less been the same musicians all the time. Okay, Brian Jones died, and then Charlie Watts died, et cetera, but they've more, whereas King Crimson has changed with every single album, almost. And so it's it's been this constant churn, and so that's nef that's definitely politics. If you have four guys who've been together for decades, it's a different story. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there are good and bad politics within. Uh, I, I work within King Crimson. I think in the latter stages of King Crimson's uh, career, uh, those politics were subsumed, uh, but that was predicated on a radical reinvention of the band <laughs> and a change in personnel. Um, but and, and a change in way in which the band did things. With Robert, um, 
in this period from 77 to 83, 83 includes a period of time when King Crimson were active, of course, the, the famous discipline uh, quartet. Um, essentially, to borrow a phrase, Robert was a free man in Paris. He felt unfettered and alive. Nobody was calling him up for favours and he had no one's future to decide. And as, as, as Joni Mitchell put it. So, so that's what there's, there's, there's a kind of a joy and a liberation to a lot of this music from this period. And I think when we talk, when Robert and I were talking about this, that's what he was experiencing. When you talk to him about, as I, as I did just recently, um, about, uh, for, a, for an article I'm writing about King Crimson for a magazine, um, you know, everything's pretty wretched. <laughs> oh, oh, that was terrible. Oh, God. Oh, God. Why do you have to remind me about that? <laughs> you know, whereas when we were talking about this, he couldn't stop talking about it. Okay, so it's Exposures, 32 Discs by Robert Fripp. Sid, thank you so much for joining us. We could have talked for hours. I can and often do. <laughs> this was episode number 237 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Follow us on Twitter, at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free and self-sustaining, so it's listener support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>